Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 16. It's a joy to be back at Bethany Community Church this week. I enjoyed being in Texas with family, and we were at my cousin's wedding, and that went well. They got married, so it was a successful wedding there. But it was good to be there and be with family, and it was good to be with the family at Bethany Baptist Church last Sunday, but it's really good to be uh, back home uh, this morning at, at Bethany Community Church, and uh, as you think about it, uh, you can pray for our, our brothers and sisters at, at Bethany Baptist. Just found out uh, this weekend that, um, for those of you who know Mark and Shelley Hare, their their son Tommy was in a very serious accident, and his, his life is in danger, in fact, and so please be praying for our, our brother and sister, the Hare family, and, and uh, the, pe- the saints at Bethany Baptist. Uh, as we look here at uh, Luke chapter 16, just a couple of the things uh, to, to draw your attention to. Uh, in your bulletin, you also received a couple of announcements about major things that are going on in our, the life of our church, and so I encourage you to, to read through those things and, and think about uh, how God is, is blessing the, the ministry at, at Bethany Community and in ways that we can be involved. Uh, one of the things, just want to touch on real quickly, there was something in there about a new discipleship ministry that's beginning uh, called Methetes, and that's uh, for those people who are considering a full-time vocational ministry, and God has just really blessed our church with people who believe that, or sensing that God may be calling them into full-time pastoral ministry or counseling ministry or missionary activity, and so uh, as as elders, we believe that it's our responsibility to shepherd these people and to, to help them consider their calling so that if God indeed is calling them to those ministries. We can lay hands on them and, and ordain them as, as leadership and as a church. And so we've been struggling with, okay, how do we, how do we help these people during this time as they, they uh, ascertain God's calling on their lives? And so this is a new ministry that we're beginning. And so if, if you've been considering ministry or you've been considering seminary or, you've, you know, as you think about God's calling in your life and, and you believe this would be a, a ministry helpful to you, please uh, let us know as we consider uh, how we can shepherd you. And uh, also, I believe Ben mentioned this uh, last week, but uh, this morning we're looking at verses 14 through 17 of Luke chapter 16, and uh, these verses are really kind of laying the foundation for verse 18. And uh, verse 18 is a, a passage that deals with marriage, it deals with adultery, sexuality, and, and God's intention for that, and divorce. Um, as we're going to be talking about verse 18, not this morning, but the following three weeks. We're going to probably spend three weeks talking about God's design for marriage and sexuality, and then we're going to talk about deviations from God's plan, and then we're going to talk more specifically about divorce and adultery and remarriage. Um, it's, it's going to be kind of a, I, I think Ben may have put it this way, it's kind of PG-13, a PG, strong PG. I don't know what, maybe it's like these days it's, you know, a strong G rating. I, I don't know, but... Um, uh, so just just take that into account for those of you with with children. Uh, you know I'm I'm going to be saying some things and uh, not not very graphically, but but using some words that you may uh, want to to talk through with your children. Uh, we have young kids and our 11 year old and 9 year old. We're going to keep them in worship service with us, but we're going to talk through some things with them at home. Just want you to be aware of of that. Well, uh, if you would please stand with me. As we read uh, Luke 16, verses 14 through 17 together, I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. And just remember, uh, Jesus has just told the parable of the dishonest manager and, and led to this conclusion, you can't serve God 
and money. And then we come to verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You may be seated. May you be encouraged through the reading of God's word this morning. And let's pray that God would continue to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our ability to, to worship you and to, to, to worship you through song and through the study of your word. We pray that you would work within our hearts, that we'd be receptive to the, the good news of your son Jesus. We pray that you would cause us to, to know you and, and love you more and to take comfort in you. Uh, Father, we think of the, the Hare family this morning and, and of Tommy and, and just um, the... the uh, intense emotions that the family must be going through. We, we pray for them. We pray for your miraculous hand upon his life. We, we pray that you would uh, help those who, who love them know how to encourage them and strengthen them at this time. We pray that uh, they would receive comfort and be able to, to comfort others, as your word in Second uh, Corinthians tells us. And we pray that you would uh, be glorified even, even in the midst of a very hard situation here. And we thank you for your word that is authoritative in our lives. It tells us how to live, how we should think, what we should do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. As I was studying Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 17, uh, I was thankful again uh, this week for the, the fact that this church allows me to, to preach uh, expositionally. Uh, the word Exposit means to, to draw out, and expositional preaching is the, the type of preaching that just kind of systematically works through portions of Scripture, drawing out the, the meaning of the, the text, and then, then explaining it and applying it in a, a cultural context. In our 21st uh, North American Central Illinois context, we take God's Word, and we're systematically going through it, and then we're explaining what the text says. Now, I say that I'm grateful that our church allows me to, to preach this way because when I, I come to verses like verses 14 through 17, if I was just kind of picking passages to preach on, these probably would not be the passages that I would, would naturally go to and say, yeah, this would be a fun, easy sermon to give. Uh, there's, there's a lot here. And I had the, the past two weeks off of preparing a, a new message, and so I was kind of thinking through these texts and reading ahead on them, and I was thinking a lot about verse 18. And as I came to verses 14 through 17, again and again, I thought, well, you know, I, I understand some individual aspects of what these verses are saying. Like, I understand, okay, the Pharisees are lovers of money, that, that's bad. I, I understand that that what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I, I kind of understand that as well. But as I kind of thought about how these verses went together as, as a cohesive unit, I, I, let me just be honest with you, I, I was a little bit intimidated. I, I thought, okay, I, I don't quite grasp how this, this passage goes with what's just come before it. And, and, I, and I'm kind of confused about how these verses relate to one another. And, and, and I'm kind of confused about how they relate to, to verse 18. And, and so uh, I'm really glad that, that uh, I was forced, because of the way that we preach, 
uh, to, to wrestle with these verses. And as I've wrestled with these verses, what I believe that God is communicating in these verses, what Luke is trying to communicate to us as he puts them where he does in the story of Jesus' life, he's, he's trying to help us understand what it looks like when the authority of God's word comes into conflict with the reality of the human heart. Whenever our heart attitudes, our social mores, kind of our intellectual understanding, what we desire to be true is at one place, and God's word is at another place, and when those two things come into conflict, uh, what do we do? This passage helps us address that problem. Let me read to you a few words that a, a friend of mine wrote. And uh, I believe that this passage, verses 14 through 17, is, is very appropriate for us to consider before we go to verse 18. Verse 18, in the next couple weeks, uh, we're going to talk about some things that uh, may be very controversial. There may be some things that I say that, that rub you the wrong way, some things that I say that rub me the wrong way, certainly some things that I say that, uh, may, that, will, that will rub our culture the wrong way. There are going to be some things that I say about, about sexuality and the right way in which we live out our lives in that area that may be considered even, uh, not by my tone, but just by the reality of what I'm saying, some people may consider it even hateful, uh, unfair, mean. If that's the case that we're getting to in the coming weeks, I think these verses are very important for us to consider this week because they help us understand what the authority of God's word means and how our hearts should react whenever what we believe comes into conflict with what God's word says. Now, I have a friend, and he was writing about this, this idea of, of changing the uh, definition of what marriage is, so changing the definition of what marriage is, and and uh, he was advocating for changing the message of what of what uh, marriage was, and and he write he wrote this on his kind of his, his, this Facebook post as he and another person were interacting, and he was talking about the authority of Scripture, and I, and I want you to listen to what he he wrote, and the reason I think it's important to listen to this not because I agree with this, but because I think it's important to understand what other people think so that we're listening to them in a, in a fair way, and that we understand what they think about what we believe. So listen to what he wrote. He said, the Bible is primarily a collection of narratives, of stories and letters interspersed with a few other genres. Now, that's not the case. Uh, it's not primarily narratives, but there are narratives in there. And so he goes on. He says, while divinely inspired, it is also very human. Our faith is not only shaped by what we read in the Bible, but also what we read, select from, and interpret the Bible in light of our faith, which is constantly developing. It goes on, indeed, some insights into the great mysteries of our faith are unlikely to change, that God is love, or that he sent his only son in the world to save it, or that God ordained marriage. But, and, and here's where something very profound is, is said, but particular moral questions questions like whether homosexuality runs contrary to the created order or it's so destructive that it should be seen as quote-unquote sin is not something I believe the Bible speaks to at all. 
you resist same-sex marriage not because of anything you know or don't know about these types of marriages or even really because of what the Bible actually says about homosexuality in the modern world of today, but because you fear what acceptance of homosexual marriage might mean for the identity and foundation of your faith. The hate and intolerance of a few plus misguided laws passed on the basis of a mix of bad theology misinformation and limited experiences with LGBT people often lead to immense suffering. I hope Christians will seek evermore to adjust our theories, our theologies about what God thinks about homosexuality and marriage in light of the actual experiences of LGBT people. Now, there's a couple things that I think are very important for us to glean from what he says, and I I believe my friend articulates his position very well, even though, of course, I I disagree with it. First of all, notice that he does believe that Scripture is authoritative, he at least intellectually says he, he believes that. He also believes that there are some things in Scripture that come through very clearly, like God is love, and that Jesus Christ's coming is an expression of God's love. But notice this. When it comes to interpreting the text, notice the the way that he believes that we should interpret the text. And the word, by the way, for interpreting the text is is hermeneutics. Listen to his hermeneutics. He he believes that uh, here's God over here, and God uh, speaks through his word. And so here's God. He's speaking through his word. And and here you and I are. And you and I should look at God's word through the lens of our experiences, through the lens of our relationships with other people, through the, the modern culture in which we live. And as we live and exist in this world and we know people and we love people and we see how they're living and how their lives are being played out, we, through that lens we look at the text of Scripture. And then as we look at the text of Scripture through that lens, it helps us understand who God is. That's his understanding of how one approaches the Bible. I would argue that that's actually idolatry, right? That we're looking through our own perceptions of who God should be, what his word should say, based on our, our experiences, and, that, and then, we, then we fashion God in that image. I would argue for the reverse, right? Now, here's God. God speaks through his word, and our experiences should be read in light of God's word, not the other way around. And, in fact, I would say that our experiences, instead of helping us understand God's word, sometimes our experiences, our life circumstances, our social mores, the the culture in which we live, serve as barriers, hindrances, not helps, in understanding what God would have us do and how he would have us live. The way in which we interpret Scripture affects how we live our lives. And in verses 14 through 17, we see that the Pharisees are interpreting Scripture in light of their experiences. They're interpreting Scripture in light of the natural inclination of their hearts. And as they do so, what happens is they exalt something that God finds to be an abomination. And so Jesus calls them out on it. Kind of the central idea that I want you to grasp as we go through these uh, verses together this morning, the central idea that I want you to wrestle with is is this. uh, Whenever your heart and his word conflict, 
obey God. Whenever your heart and, and his word come into conflict, when there's an impasse, and you say, boy, what God's word says, I don't really like. Whenever what God's word says, I, I'd like to redefine in some way. Whenever your heart and, and his word come at an impasse, obey God. That's going to be Jesus' words to the Pharisees. It's going to help us understand what he says in verse 18 as he confronts the Pharisees' wrong understanding about marriage. Let's, let's go ahead and look at the text. And as we look at the text, I'm going to kind of give us three truths about God's word that help us as we begin our series next week on marriage and God's plan for marriage and sexuality. Uh, the first thing I want us to understand about God's word from verses 14 through 17 of Luke chapter 16, the first thing I, I want us to understand is that God's word is going to be distorted and rejected. God's word is going to be distorted and rejected. Because of the condition of our hearts, because of the natural inclination of our, our desires, we are going to be tempted to distort and reject God's word. Looking into the text with me, in fact, let's get a little bit of the context. Remember, he's just said these words to his disciples at the beginning of verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. We saw that he was talking to his disciples, and he goes on, and he tells them this, this parable of the dishonest manager, and he concludes what he's telling his disciples in verse, 13, in verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters. It's impossible for you to serve both God and money is what he's going to tell them. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to need to hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus says these very strong words, you cannot serve God and money. As he says these words to his disciples, you cannot serve God and money, the Pharisees are listening as well. And as they hear Jesus say this, it says, Luke tells us, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed them. In other words, here's the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, by the way, weren't necessarily all that wealthy. It wasn't like there were people who were just swimming in gold, and, and of course these people are, are money lovers. These are the people that are kind of where we are in terms of the, the structure of society. They weren't the one percenters. They were people who were middle class, and, and they hear what Jesus is saying about not being able to serve God in money. In their hearts, they're lovers of money, and God's word, what God's word says about money, both in Scripture and in Jesus' words, comes into conflict with what they love in their hearts, and how do they respond? They respond with ridicule. Their hearts and God's words come at an impasse, and they respond with ridicule. And then Jesus, in verse 15, tells them three things about themselves that I think are instructive for us. What's the first thing he says to them? He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You are those who, who attempt to declare yourself righteous. Remember we saw this in Luke chapter 10 as, as Jesus was interacting with the, the lawyer and he was telling the story of the Good Samaritan as, as he tells this uh, lawyer about how one must uh, love the Lord their God with all their heart and love their neighbors the, themselves. The lawyer desires to what? To, to justify himself. He wants to, to declare himself righteous in the presence of other people and so he asks the question, uh, who is my neighbor? The Pharisees were those who desired to look good in front of other people, who wanted to be declared righteous on their own terms, Jesus says. 
then Jesus says a second thing. Not only are you guys those who want to justify yourselves, but know this, God knows your hearts. Uh, so you may have this desire to present yourself off as a, a person who, who loves God and is doing the right thing, and yet the problem for you is that, that God is a searching God. God is a God who is able to look into the human heart and, and know it intimately. This past week, uh, one of our, our children was caught in some wrongdoing. And you know how um, you have to turn the, the screws in your children's lives in different ways. You know, there, there's some children that, you know, you can, you can um, be very direct with, and it just goes right over their head, like, oh, are you upset with me? I, I had no idea. Um, I, I don't know what I've done to displease you, but, and th- their hearts can stay kind of hard. Now, uh, this child, um, this, this was my corrective technique. Okay, I did, I did, this is, this is the full, this is the sum total of my correction. I do this, the waterworks start going, okay, you know, oh, I'm just, I'm so sorry, okay, and this is what I told this child, I said, look, um, uh, I, I, I appreciate what looks like a sensitive heart, but, but daddy doesn't know what's really going on in your heart, and furthermore, you don't truly know what's going on in your own heart, do you? I said, but the good thing is, God is a God who can know whether or not your heart is, is truly repentant here. Look at, listen to some other verses that, that we see in Scripture about God and the, and the human heart. First Samuel 16, 7, the Lord is speaking to Samuel and says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. First Kings chapter 8, verse 39, this is Solomon speaking that as he dedicates the temple and he says to God, You, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. First Chronicles, First Chronicles twenty-eight nine. This is David speaking to Solomon. And says he says to Solomon, "Know the God of your father and serve him with a a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you." God is the one who can look inside the human heart and and know what's right and what's wrong and and where the the right heart attitudes are existing and growing and flourishing and where there's a heart that's deceiving itself. Jesus tells the Pharisees, look, number one, know this, your tendency, your heart's desire is to justify yourself before other people. But know this, God knows your heart. And then here's the kicker, the third thing he tells them in verse 15. He says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The, the tendency of the human heart is to justify itself, and as it does so, it exalts among people what is an abomination to God. Brothers and sisters, this is such a crucial point for us to understand if we're to rightly understand how God's word is going to be distorted and rejected. God's word isn't just going to be distorted and rejected by those liberals out there who who deny the authority of Scripture. God's word is going to be distorted and rejected by you and by me as our own human hearts come into contact with what God's word says. In fact, let me give you some examples of the Pharisees. Let me just give you one example of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 15. 
Matthew chapter 15, if you want to turn there with me. Verse 1, there's some Pharisees and scribes that are upset with Jesus and his disciples. And then in verse 2 of Matthew 15, they ask Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They're not washing their hands when they eat. Now, I'm a big fan of hand washing, uh, but that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about this ceremonial cleansing of the hands. Why aren't your disciples doing that? It's a big deal in the Pharisees' minds. And Jesus responds in verse 3, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. In other words, they had set these traditions in place that superseded God's word. And they said, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to honor our father and mother, but if we tell our mom and dad what we were going to give to you to help provide for you in your old age, we've actually given to God. Eventually it's going to go to him, but right now we're using it. Uh, Then we haven't violated God's word. And Jesus says, look, look, look. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, verse 7, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus, as he's talking to the Pharisees, says, look, you're distorting God's word. There's a hard attitude within yourself that desires to justify yourself. God knows what's really in your heart. And know this, that the things that you're exalting are actually an abomination to God. It's, it's, it's ironic. The very God that you say you're worshiping as you exalt these attitudes and these opinions are actually an abomination to God, causing people to live in a way that is an exact there's an exact opposition to the way that God calls them to live. The human heart's ability, the mind's ability to deceive itself is, is astonishing, right? It was funny, I was reading an article this past week about lying to yourself, and I, I kind of Googled lying to yourself, and I saw a couple of psychological studies, and so I clicked on one, and this article began by talking about these uh, the study that was conducted by a psychologist, and it hooked up, you know, these little, I don't know how they do this, but they were able to, to read the, the, the brain, do these brain scans and see which areas of the brain were, were active. And they took these people who were either really strong Republicans or really strong Democrats, and they sat them down, and they watched their brain waves, and they had them read some stories. And whenever a Republican, for example, would read a story about a Republican politician who was dishonest, they found that the areas of the brain that that dealt with emotion became very active. And the areas of the brain that dealt with logic, you know what happened to those areas? (laughs) They went dormant, you know. (laughs) And it became an emotional response. And and they found ways, not logically to deal with the facts that someone of their party was doing something dishonest, but found ways to just kind of dismiss it emotionally. And and the same with with the Democrat, uh, the people who were Democrats that were part of this study. And you see it all the time. If, if, if a politician that's kind of on the side you agree with does something wrong, you're like, oh, man, that's just kind of an aberration. If a politician on the other side does something dishonest or wrong, you're like, yep, see, that's, that's, what, you know, that's what the Democratic Party leads to. You know, it, it's, it's the tendency of our hearts to just kind of lie to ourselves about our own weaknesses. We desire, oh, oh and by the way, I forgot about this, 
the article, I read this article, very interesting. Man, this is a really good article about lying to yourself. I got to the very end. It was written by a hypnotherapist. So, and selling online uh, hypno classes or something like that. So, uh, I don't, I don't know what that means. I guess just that he was really good at lying to himself, or he figured, tell other people that other people lie to you, and then I'll tell you. Now, if there's some hypnotherapist in here, I, I apologize, um, but not too strongly. Um, God's word, God's words, it's going to be, it's going to be distorted and rejected. Okay, your your heart is going to affect your hermeneutics. Your heart is going to affect the way that you approach God's word and and, and interpret it. That's what you and I need, need to be mindful of. We need to be aware of this. So, so kind of the application here is, is simply, whenever you come into contact with hard truths in Scripture, don't be surprised that your knee-jerk reaction is to reject them or to minimize them. So you come to a passage that, that deals with how God calls you to live in, in relationship with your brothers or sisters in Christ, if you're a single person, you come to that, and you, boy, that's kind of a hard truth. I wonder how I can redefine this. Or you come into the passages that deal with, with hard words about wealth and materialism, and, you, and boy, how can I just kind of spiritualize this so I'm still obedient without having to make any hard life changes? Your natural tendency is going to be to distort and reject God's word. That is so crucial for us to understand as we go into verse 18 in the coming weeks. The second thing I want us to understand about God's word is, and this is different than your, if you're taking notes, I've, I've changed the wording a little bit, so I, I apologize. God's word calls us to abandon our own kingdom and enter his. God's word, not only is it going to be distorted and rejected, but understand God's word is going to call us to abandon our own kingdom and enter his. Verse 16 Verse 16, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. The law, and this is a hard verse to understand, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, now what is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, at the beginning of of the verse, he's saying, look, there was this time period in which the, the law was in effect, and this time period in which the law was effect, in effect and the, and the prophets were in effect, the responsibility of people was to, to live under the law, to live in obedience to, law, to the law until the time of John the Baptist. Now, since then, since his, his uh, message proclaiming my arrival, there's now been this good news of the kingdom proclaimed. The good news that the kingdom of God is here. And so you see this throughout the Gospel of Luke, as we've already talked about, that Jesus and his disciples proclaiming, okay, this time that the the law and the prophets looked toward, now it's here. Now is the time to enter the kingdom of God, to repent of one's sins, as, as John the Baptist proclaimed to people, and to turn to faith in Christ and enter into God's kingdom. That's the message of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, that kingdom that was looked for in the Old Testament has now arrived. And then he says that everyone forces his way into it. So, so what does that mean, that a person forces his way into the kingdom of God? Does that mean that, that works are required to enter? No, but let me, let me read a couple passages that I think kind of get across this same idea. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is, he's talking about John the Baptist, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then verse 12, 
from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has, has suffered violence, and, and the violent take it by force. There, there's this, this action that's required of people as they hear about the kingdom of God, this, this action that they need to take. Luke 13 that we looked at uh, some time ago, Jesus says, strive, uh, uh, attempt very strongly, agonize to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Luke 14 talks about the difficult terms of Jesus' discipleship. Remember when we talked about that? He turns to these crowds that are following him, that are calling themselves his disciples. He says, you think you're my disciples? Let's, let's lay out the terms of discipleship. They're not easy. It's not like uh, joining the Boy Scouts or, or becoming a Rotary Club member. Listen to what it requires. You have to hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. If you don't take upon yourself those terms of discipleship, you cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying here is this time in which the kingdom has been announced requires people to turn from their own self-sufficiency, to turn from their dead works and, and turn toward faith in him. And as they do so, that life of repentance that flows from a true faith in Jesus Christ is going to be a life marked with, with violence, with difficulty as one strives to pursue the kingdom of God. Jesus' call on people is a call to abandon their own kingdom and to enter his. Now, here's how that relates to us as we prepare to enter verse 18 next week. And verse 18 is the application Jesus gives the Pharisees. It's the application we're going to have as well. Um, that's not a popular message, is it? The message that you must abandon your own domain, you must abandon your own kingdom, you must uh, relinquish your own sovereignty and submit to the king of kings, to the lord of lords, uh, that's not a very popular message. The message of our culture is, is, look, if it feels good to you, if it makes you happy, if it's, if it's the way that you want to live, you should do it. And in fact, to, to infringe upon your enjoyment of life and, and the way that you, the path that you believe will make you happy, to infringe upon that is, is hateful by another person. To even have ideas that that's a wrong way to live is, is, is bigotry. That's the message of our culture. Jesus says, no, no, no. your kingdom's over. Your kingdom is, is over and my kingdom is coming and my kingdom is going to crush all other kingdoms. And the wise course of action is to abandon your own kingdom and change your allegiance to God's kingdom. That's not a message that's going to win you any popularity contests as you pursue obedience to God. There's a scene in the, the Shakespeare play, Antony and Cleopatra, and there's this messenger that arrives in the second act and, and is his job is to tell Cleopatra that, that her beloved has, has married another person. And, and he begins to talk to her, and, and she says that if his message is good, she'll say, she says, I'll give you gold. But if it's, if it's bad, I'm going, the gold I give thee, I will melt and pour down thy throat. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine being a messenger. Good news, gold. Bad news, gold poured down my throat. 
throat, which is, is not edible, just FYI. Um, so he tells her the bad news, and, and she begins to strike him, and he says this. He says, gracious madam, I that bring the news did not make the match. The believer sometimes has the unenviable task of proclaiming God's word to a generation that has rejected God's word and, and is accused of importing their morals onto other people. Our task, though, is to lovingly proclaim God's word, God's word that calls us to abandon our own kingdom and enter his. Third truth about God's word, uh, third truth, verse 17, uh, God's word will always be authoritative for your life. Jesus says this, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, that one dot there is describing like a stroke of the pen that would be used to distinguish two Hebrew letters from one another. He says, look, it's more it's easier for all the created realm, for heavens and earth to, to fall away from existence. That, that's easier to have happen than for one dot, one, one little stroke of the letter of God's law to, to, to fall away, to no longer be God's revelation. In other words, the word of God that they're denying is still authoritative. The words of the prophet, even though Jesus Christ is, is coming now, are still authoritative words. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem, and perhaps some of you are always thinking, are already thinking this. When we say God's word will always be authoritative for your life, and we come to a verse like verse 17, what do people who reject God's word say sometimes? They say, well, well hold on a minute. <laughs> hold on a minute. If, it's, if the law and the prophets are, are still God's revelation and no word of God is ever going to fall away, then uh, where's the goat sacrifice? Uh, where, you know, why are you guys uh, not um, you know, being more careful in the type of, of clothing you're wearing? You're mixing different types of, of fabric together. That's, that's contrary. Why aren't you stoning obedient, disobedient children? Uh, you know, what, what's, what's the deal? Why aren't you living under the law? If the law, if it's, hey, if, if the law is still valid, if God's moral law always, always is, is, is in effect, why aren't you living in accordance to the Old Testament laws? You're just, and you hear this frequently from people who reject the authority of God's word, uh, you people are just picking and choosing, right? You're just picking and choosing. You don't like people who live differently than you, and so you're just picking on certain verses from the Old Testament to smash them with. We've talked about this before, but let me just kind of remind you some things that we've seen as we've studied through the book of Ephesians and the book of Luke now about God's law, about the Old Testament law. In fact, before we look at those, uh, why don't you just turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Turn back to, that's the last, that's the fifth book in the Bible. We come to Deuteronomy 18, and as we come to Deuteronomy 18, we see some very interesting words that Moses says that helps us understand what the law was, what the people who were receiving the law understood about the law, and, and what the law pointed to. You come to verse 9 of Deuteronomy 18. And Moses says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now remember, the, the words of 
Moses and Deuteronomy are said as the people are encamped, the people of Israel are encamped on the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to go into the promised land and, and take it over. And so God's law is given to them as they go into this land so they can know how they're supposed to live. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. They were going into a land that, were, that, that was full of people, populated by people, who were living lifestyles, doing things that, that I can't even describe in mixed company. The, the, things and their, their, the things they were doing to children and to one another were just beyond belief. They had fallen so far away from God's general revelation as how people were supposed to live that, that it was just beyond comprehension. And God says, as you go in that land, you aren't supposed to live that way. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those na these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And so what the Old Testament law is, that the law that, that Moses gives to the people, it comes after Abraham, after God's promise through Abraham to bless the nations, the, the, the promised seed, the Messiah that will, that will remove the curse. It comes after the words spoken to the woman about the, the coming one who would crush the heel of the serpent. It's the words that God speaks through Moses to a specific audience at a specific time, the people of Israel, as they're to live in Canaan. The law was given through Moses to the people of Israel for a certain period of time. And as the law was given, it was told them, look, this is for this particular time. And then look what happens. Verse 15, what's going to happen? The Lord in the future will raise up for, for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not again hear the, let me hear, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And so even in the laws, God gives it, he says, look, this law is for you right now. And in the future, there's, there's coming this promised Messiah, this pro promised king, this promised prophet, and it's to him whom you shall listen to. Imagine if my, my children were standing around. And I said, hey, I have some instructions for you. And I said, hey, hey Austin, come here, buddy. Um, buddy, your, your room is really messy. And dad doesn't like messy rooms. Um, I, I injure myself when I come in to tuck you in, in to, to bed at night. And, and Daddy is, is tired of, of bloody feet and uh, bruised knees. And uh, you know, it's, it's just not a good situation. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up your Legos be before you go to bed at night. Okay, buddy? Legos off the floor. All right? Yeah, Dad, okay. All right, good. And my, my daughter's listening. Now, those words that I spoke to my son, did I speak them to my daughter? No. But as, but, but first of all, are they still my words? Absolutely. Are they the words of her father? Absolutely. Can she glean insight into my character as she listens to those words? Absolutely. 
And then I turn to her and I say, you know, to my older daughter, I say, hey, Hannah, you know, the, 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 the kitchen things that are, that are down uh, on the floor that you and Ellie are playing with or that Ellie's playing with, I want those to be picked up at night as well, okay? Yeah, Dad, sounds great. The Old Testament remains God's law. Not one, not one word of God's law is ever going to fall and cease to be God's revelation. But what we need to understand, and this is what Scripture tells us, is that the law was given to the people of Israel to live at that time. And the law was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what Jesus is saying in verses 14 through 17. And yet, even though this new kingdom is coming, God's character does not change. The ceremonial laws, they're done away with in the person of Jesus Christ. The the way in which they're supposed to live and construct their society, that's done away with as Jesus Christ comes and the gospel replaces the law. And yet, as we come to God's law and God's words, they remain God's words. And as we read them, we understand God and his character and his character and and morality does not change. God still calls us to live in a certain way in marriage. God still calls us to behave with with honesty in our relationships with one another. God's word will always be authoritative for your life. Let Let me just close by reading a couple passages from the book of Jeremiah as an illustration of this reality. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah has a very difficult job, right? Jeremiah is called to preach to the people of Judah, and, and as, as he begins preaching to them, we see that, that things don't go well for Jeremiah. He says, uh, he, say, he speaks God's word, and he tells them in verse 2, to, God tells Jeremiah, stand in the gate of the Lord of hosts and proclaim this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this land. In other words, Jeremiah constantly, throughout the book of Jeremiah, calls the people to repent. He says, look, this is what you're doing. It's not good Turn from it, turn from it, turn from it, turn from it. And people consistently listen to the words of God, and as they hear the words of God, they reinterpret them. Yeah, Jeremiah, surely you don't mean that God is, you understand, we are God's promised people, right? Judgment's not coming. And so further in Jeremiah 7, we see uh, Jeremiah talking about uh, how they Trust deceptive people. Verse 8 says, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and said, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people, Israel. Here's what happened to the people of Judah. Jeremiah stands before them and says, look, this is what God calls us to do. And as the people heard God's word, remember what we talked about at the beginning, the people hear God's word, and, and God, what, what God's word says come in, comes into conflict with what their hearts desire to do. And as those two things come into conflict, what God's word says to do, and what their hearts desire, they deceive themselves. 
and they distort God's words. They say, no, what you're saying could not be true. They look at their experiences. They, they interpret their experiences in light of the, the best parts of God's words that, that they want to believe, and they deny what Jeremiah is telling them. When your heart and his word come into conflict, obey God. We're going to come into some really tough things over the next few weeks. And please pray for me. Pray for our other leaders at, at the church and, and pray for our own hearts. Because I would hate for someone to think that the things that we're saying are born out of, a heart, born out of hearts that don't love people desperately. But also pray for our own hearts as we say hard things about what God's word teaches that our rebellious hearts would, would soften, right? And we'd respond rightly to what God's word says. That our hearts, as they conflict with God's teaching, that our hearts would change and we wouldn't try to change God's word. It's going to be an exciting time for our church. It's going to be an exciting time for our individual lives as we think through how God is calling each of us to change. And by the way, if you don't find any truths in God's word hard. If you don't find yourself challenged in some very uncomfortable ways, you don't experience some sort of deep, you know, kind of some, some difficult times as you encounter God's word, you're not encountering it rightly, are you? Let's pray for God's grace. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability that we have through the work of your spirit to, to come to it and to be obedient and we pray that you would change our hearts, cause us to rightly understand who you are, how you desire us to live. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.